is the last lesson in your books, number 193, okay? Part A. <laughs> Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Father, we do thank you for this day you have given to us. We love you. We treasure you. We honor you. We glorify you. We praise you. We thank you for your wonderful attributes of love and grace and mercy and justice and holiness and and long-suffering patience with us and everything that you are. We just we just cannot thank you enough for being a personal, loving God, God who cared enough about your creation, even though we fail you and sin miserably, that you loved us so much that you did send your only begotten Son to save us from our sin. Thank you that his mission here on earth was to seek and to save that which was lost. And I thank you, Father, that I was lost and now I'm found. I was blind and now I see. And I pray every one of us in this room can say that. Now as we turn to this final lesson, this this great study, the conclusion of this great study on the, the life of your son, the earthly life of your son, I just pray that you would go before us, that your spirit would be the teacher, that you would help all of us to focus on what you have to say to us in the great commission that you assign to us in your final words. And we pray that Jesus would be lifted up and he alone would receive any glory that comes from the next hour. For we do pray and ask in his holy name. Amen. Well, at long, long last, we have come to the final chapter of our eighth and final volume of this long chronological life of Christ study. It's only taken us 11 years to get there. But we come at long last to the last chapter, and it is appropriately entitled The Grand Finale. However, the problem is that there is so much to cover in this last chapter, the closing words of the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and in the Lord's Ascension, which we will also dip into uh, over in the book of Acts, Acts 1, verses 9 to 11, that today's lesson is the grand finale, part one. Doesn't surprise anybody, does it? Next week will be the grand finale of the grand finale. <laughs> and so the Lord has gone before us and he's worked it all out perfectly, just perfectly. So this morning we're going to close out the Gospel of Matthew. Last week we closed out the Gospel of John. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to close out Mark and Luke. Today we're going to discuss the Lord's eighth post-resurrection appearance. And again, as with his seventh post-resurrection appearance, it takes place in Galilee. These are the only two that took place in Galilee, the seventh and the eighth. All the rest of his post-resurrection appearances were in Jerusalem, down in Judea. And it was at the time of this eighth appearance of the Lord Jesus that he proclaimed to his followers what we commonly refer to as the Great Commission. So that will be the subject of our lesson this morning. With no more introduction than that, let's look at Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Matthew 28:16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son 
and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe, observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. All four Gospels end with the word, Amen. So be it. All right, so the disciples were in Galilee. They were there in obedience to the Lord, who had told them to meet him there. Now, for the very first time in Matthew 28, verse 16, we find out that the Lord had been more specific about the meeting place in Galilee. Well, that makes sense, because Galilee is pretty big. It'd be like saying, meet me in North Carolina. Okay, uh, could you be a little more specific about that? <laughs> he had assigned a particular Galilean mountain for them to wait for his appearance to them. Now, what may have happened is from that mountain, and there are mountains around the Sea of Galilee, perhaps from that mountain, if it was one that was around the sea, they had the view of the Sea of Galilee down below. And after waiting there, perhaps for days, Peter and six of the other disciples decided that they would take a nighttime fishing break. And perhaps the other four men, you know, there were seven that went a-fishing, right? There were four left, because there were 11 apostles at this time. Perhaps the other four men remained on the mountain, as they had been instructed to do. One of them, perhaps, was Matthew. He had been a tax collector. Maybe he wasn't into fishing. Maybe these guys were just more obedient and said, we're going to stay put. Maybe they said, well, if the Lord does appear, we'll call down to you and say, hurry up, get up here. You know, I don't know. That's one possible scenario. It's also possible that the mountain meeting place was assigned for their next rendezvous by the Lord to Peter and the other six men at some time during his seventh post-resurrection appearance, perhaps while they were eating breakfast together there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Maybe he said to them then, okay, the next time I meet you, it's going to be on such and such mountain here in Galilee. But either way, either way, whether originally assigned on the night of his arrest back in Matthew 26:32, when the Lord had said, after I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. And then he told him which mountain in Galilee. Or if he assigned that mountain at the time of his seventh appearance. Either way, the 11 are now on a Galilean mountain. We don't know which one, but they are awaiting for the Lord who then did appear to them. This is the eighth post-resurrection appearance. Have you ever noticed how mountains often were the chosen location for many of the high points of the Lord's ministry. That was a pun, you know, mountains were the high points. <laughs> Even back in the Old Testament days, mountains were pretty important. You know, when something took place on a mountain, it was usually something important. Um, you know, before the flood, before the flood, there were no mountains on planet Earth. But in the changed topography of the new post-flood world, the Lord began all over again with the human race starting from a mountain. Where did Noah's ark come to rest? Mount Ararat, exactly. We know also that the Lord gave the law to Moses from Mount Sinai, which was the summit peak 
in a mountain range called Mount Horeb. The whole range is called Mount Horeb, but on a particular peak of that mountain range, Mount Sinai, is where the Lord gave the law. Mount Moriah was where Abraham went to sacrifice his beloved son Isaac. Jerusalem sets on Mount Zion, which is the same place as Mount Moriah. Those two words are synonymous, Mount Moriah, Mount Zion. Actually, sometimes Zion can include, you know, the whole nation of Israel, uh, Zionists, you know. But um, Zion and Moriah are interchangeable. But let's just think about Christ's life, okay? First of all, he was tempted by Satan in the Judean wilderness mountains where he proved himself impeccable. We discussed the doctrine of the impeccability of the Lord Jesus because his divine nature overrided his human nature and he could not sin. God cannot sin. From a mountain, he also presented his charter for kingdom citizens in the famous Sermon on the Mount. Not exactly sure what mount that was. It was probably from another mount, they speculate perhaps Mount Harmon, which is now known as the Mount of Transfiguration, that the God-man unveiled his divine nature to his three inner circle disciples, Peter, James, and John. From the Mount of Olives, the son of David rode into Jerusalem on a young donkey to officially present himself as Israel's Messiah. From that same mount, the greatest prophet who ever lived gave the greatest prophetic discourse of all time. What was that? The Olivet Discourse. On Mount Calvary, which is actually a small hill located on Mount Moriah, where Abraham went to sacrifice his son, on Mount Calvary, uh, of course, we know that the Lord Jesus willingly sacrificed himself for the sins of the world. It was from the Mount of Olives that the resurrected God-man ascended into heaven, which we will look at, Lord willing, next week. It likewise will also be from this same Mount of Olives, or to this same Mount of Olives, that he will return at the time of his second coming. Where he took off, he will return. Mount of Olives. So it is not surprising then that the Lord Jesus would speak the words of the great commission assigned to his followers from where? From a mountain. That is really not that surprising. We don't know which mountain because we are not told. But just as his words verily, verily stressed important truths, so did geographically elevated Places stress important events, events and truths. Now, Matthew, if you notice, if you look from Matthew 28, 15 and jump to verse 16, you notice that he wrote absolutely nothing about the episode of the Lord's seventh post-resurrection appearance and the account of the seven who went fishing. As I said, Matthew was likely one of the four who did not go fishing. You know, being a tax, former tax collector, maybe he just wasn't, didn't have the fishing thing in his blood. I don't know. But he simply tells us, he skipped that whole episode. He simply tells us that all 11 apostles went to the Galilean mountain where they had been appointed to meet the Lord. And there the Lord did indeed appear. Now, Bible scholars estimate 
that this would have been this eighth appearance of the Lord, the resurrected Lord, would have been somewhere between the 20th and the 30th, 35th day after his resurrection. You know, he only stayed around for 40 days. So they guess that this would be somewhere between the 20th and the 35th day of his resurrection. I think more likely the 20th, between, the 20th to the 30th. They've got to give him more time to get back down to Jerusalem and do some teaching and some other things. But anyway, that's all just guesswork. So now we have a question. We come to a question. <clears throat> Was this eighth post-resurrection appearance just made to the 11 apostles? Were they the only one? And, they, and if you read Matthew's account, kind of does sound like it's just the 11. Or was it just the 11, or were there others present with them? Now, I do not know the answer to that question definitively. But if only the 11 apostles were present, then what do we do with verse 17? Where it tells us that when they saw him... They worshipped him. I have no problem with that. But what does it say next? But some doubted. You read that and you just want to go out and hang these guys. You know, like, whoa, what is it going to take for you guys? <laughs> now, Thomas, Thomas had been the only doubting apostle left after Resurrection Sunday. And he had easily, quickly sailed from disbelief in the Lord's bodily resurrection to great faith, my Lord and my God. And that was one week later when they're still down in Jerusalem. So you see, by this time in Galilee, all 11 apostles have full assurance that Jesus was not simply appearing to them as a spirit, but that he had bodily resurrected. So it seems more likely that the some who were doubting that the one standing in front of them on the Galilean mountain was a resurrected, bodily resurrected Savior, would seem more likely that they were part of the crowd that the Apostle Paul told us about over in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, where he said that above 500 brethren saw Jesus at one time. If it wasn't here in this eighth post-resurrection appearance, we don't know where to put that. It seems most likely that it fits here. Surely the 11 had gone around announcing to all their friends and their family members and their fellow Galileans that the one they had trusted to be Israel's Messiah was alive from the dead. We have seen him ourselves. And so please join us on the mountain where he told us he would meet with us. You know, join us so that we can wait together for him. Doesn't that seem like that's something the 11 would do? Wouldn't, it, wouldn't that be what you would do? So it, it would not be at all strange that when Jesus did appear, and many of these people are seeing him for the first time, that some of them would doubt what they were seeing. Isn't that, after all, exactly what the 11 had done? When they first saw him, well, other than Thomas, but when the other 10 saw him, they thought maybe that they were seeing a spirit. So we could understand that these, some of these people would think it, this is his spirit. 
and not really him bodily resurrected. It also makes sense that like the Galilean women who first saw Jesus on Resurrection Sunday morning and knew who he was, that they fell down and did what? Worshipped him. It makes sense that these uh, many of these people just did that. They fell down and they worshipped him. Furthermore, it has been taught almost unanimously for some 2,000 years now that the Great Commission is the Lord's assignment for all believers in him. Not just the 11 apostles, it's for all of us who believe. That's our great commission. So it would be appropriate for Jesus to have initially spoken that great commission to a joint representative group of apostles and other believers. That's not mandatory. He could have given it just to the apostles who then shared it with everybody else. But it would seem more likely that he would share it or give it for the first time to a joint representative group of apostles and believers. So I think that this is where um, the above 500 brethren also saw the Lord Jesus, is at the time of this eighth post-resurrection appearance. Now those who at first did doubt were obviously convinced not only when Jesus came closer to them, which, by the way, is what is implied in the Greek. In verse 18, it says, and Jesus came. That implies that he came down closer. Perhaps he appeared on the top of the mountain and then came down closer. And perhaps when he came closer, they could see the nail prints in his hands. So maybe that's when they got convinced. But surely also when he spoke to them, and especially when he declared his absolute authority. Now, we know that they did all believe. Every one of those some above 500 people all believed. Jesus never appeared before any unbelievers. They were people who believed he was the Messiah, and when they saw him, they became convinced he had resurrected bodily. And we know that because Paul calls them brethren, above 500 brethren. And you can guarantee there were sisterin in there, too. (laughs) So any doubts that some may have initially had about seeing his spirit or a ghost were quickly dispelled and likely they all joined together with the other ones and fell down and worshipped him. Wouldn't that have been a scene to see? Over 511 people prostrate worshipping the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Matthew... was not divinely led to close up his gospel record of the Lord's earthly life with another great scene, the Lord's ascension into heaven. Now, wouldn't you have have loved to have seen that one too? (laughs) When the Lord just started lifting up, defying the law of gravity and went up into the clouds. Wow, that would have been fantastic to see that. Mark and Luke close up their gospels with the Lord's ascension. But Matthew was not inspired to do that. Neither was he inspired to close up his gospel account by testifying to its inerrancy and to the inexhaustibility of the Lord's wondrous works. Who did that? John, which was really appropriate because John closes up all four gospels. So, you know, he was the last one to write. So really when he says, you know, He says, we testify of these things. He's speaking for all four of them as to the inerrancy of what they wrote and to the inexhaustibility of the Lord's words, uh, works and words. If they'd all been written down, even the world couldn't contain everything that he did. But Matthew instead was inspired to end the first and the longest 
gospel account with the Lord's great commission to his followers. And this is interesting because none of the other three gospels is as limited in its appeal to the Jewish people as Matthew's record is. The book of Matthew stresses the immediate historical and ethnic culture into which Jesus was born and in which he ministered. And what culture was that? What people was that? It was Israel. It was Jewish people. He came, you know, under Judaism more than any other. Matthew stressed the Old Testament messianic prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Those were qualifications that the Jews would know to be absolutely vital. That's why Matthew gives a genealogical record of Jesus. That's important for the Jews. John, of course, it's important to us, but the Jews knew no one could qualify to be the Messiah unless he came from the right ancestry. Now, you know, John's gospel is the most universal of the four. It is an appeal to the whole world to accept the deity of Christ. For God so loved the world. John is universal. Mark was written largely, of course, all of them are for all of us, but Mark's immediate audience was an appeal to the Romans. You know, Mark was really what we could call the Gospel of Peter. Mark got, John, young John Mark got all his information from Peter. This is, this is the Peter's writing style. You know, Mark is concise to the point, action-filled. Romans are interested, not in genealogy, right, for a, for a savior, they're interested in what can a person do. So this, you know, Mark is all about what Jesus did, his works. Luke, who was a Greek himself, he appeals to the Greek reader. You know, more philosophical and that kind of thing. The Greeks were big into philosophy. And Matthew, as stated, aimed primarily at the Jewish people, those who were in Judaism. Isn't that interesting? You know, covered the whole world the, the Jews, the Romans, the Greeks, and, and the whole world. Also, it's interesting, I don't know if you remember back, some of you who were here 11 years ago, when we discussed how perfect it is. You know, each one of us, one of the Gospels gives us a different portrait of the Lord. One gives us a portrait of him as the sovereign king. One as the suffering servant of Jehovah. One as the son of man. More, you know, stressing his humanity and one, of course, as the son of God. And then you have um, Matthew who approaches his gospel as a teacher. He has a teacher's heart. He is all about teaching the Jewish people about their Messiah. Mark is more like a preacher. That makes sense. That was Peter. Peter was a preacher. And then you have Luke who wrote as a historian. And John is our theologian. Again, you have all the bases covered. But with all of this in mind, is it not very interesting that Matthew ends his record with the Lord's words to his Jewish followers to no longer limit their operations just to Israel, to the Jewish people. Get out there and get going to all the people of the whole world with the gospel message, not just regarding Israel's Messiah, but the Savior of the whole world, which is what the Jewish people were to do all along. 
They were not to have kept the truth of Jehovah God and his promised Messiah to themselves, were they? They should have been doing this all along. Well, you know what the, uh, do you know what the scriptural number for the world is? We've talked a lot about threes, God's number and his number of creation. What is the number for the world, earth? Yes, right, four, four. There are four directions, north, south, east, west, four seasons, winter, summer, spring, and fall, four great world kingdoms written about in the scripture. You have Babylon, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, four kinds of spiritual soil, Matthew 13, in the hearts of men, four horsemen of the tribulation who will spread worldwide judgment. There is the fourfold earthly ministry of Jesus Christ as told in the four gospels as we just discussed and on and on but i say all that to say that the lord's great commission for believers to take the message of the gospel to the whole world to the whole earth pivots from point to point based on four occurrences of a little tiny word and that word is all four alls in the great commission let's look at them verses 18 to 20 First of all, verse 18, the Lord possesses all power. Therefore, number two, he sends forth his people to all nations. Verse 19, where we are to teach those we reach all things whatsoever he has commanded. That's in the first part of verse 20. And we do this knowing with confidence Number four, that he is with us always. Now, actually, in the Greek, <clears throat> that is all the days. He is with us all the days until the end of the age. That is not the word cosmos, world. It is actually the Greek word eon, which means age. He is promising to be with us until the end of the age, which is the end of the tribulation right before the millennial kingdom. He doesn't have to promise to be with us in the millennial kingdom because he will be with us, you know, in the millennial kingdom for a thousand years and then we will all be ushered into the eternal state where, of course, he'll be with us always. So he's promising to be with us all during this age when there are human beings on earth before the kingdom. Well, the first all is in verse 18. It says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying... All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. You see, this is important for him to do. This is important for him to say because he needs to do it before he gives them his commission. He is establishing his authority so that the assignment that they would next hear would not seem so utterly impossible to accomplish. That's a pretty big assignment, isn't it? <laughs> go into all the world, all the people of all the world, and give them all things that I have taught you. That's pretty. Dr. John Whitcomb, who spoke once at our Bible study years ago, he's the author of the Genesis Flood and many other, you know, he's, he began the big creation movement that we have in, in the world today. But he once said that this commission is utterly impossible, utterly impossible on a human level. So the Lord bookends it with two great promises. The first one is he tells us he has all power. And then he closes it up with telling us that he will also be present with us. You know, lo, I am with you always. <clears throat> Otherwise, the commission would be impossible. The one giving the assignment, 
has the authority to make such a request and to see it fulfilled. Now, the reason I say authority, that he has all authority, is because the Greek word that is translated power in the King James there in verse 18 is not the Greek word dynami, from which we get dynamite. Dynami. It's not that word that he has all power, you know, omnipotent power. This is the Greek word excusia, which means authority, authoritative power. The power given by the Father to the Son is sovereign authority. For it is not only absolute authority, doesn't he say all power? That's unlimited power. Unlimited power is sovereign power. So it's not only absolute, but look, it's also universal. Where does he have all authority? Unlimited authority. Where? In heaven and on earth. All authority on heaven or in heavenly spaces, this entire universe and heaven, third heaven, is his. In other words, everywhere where there is a where. Everywhere where there is a where, he has absolute authority over every single created being, which includes those who are visible and invisible. That's important to know because we're being sent out to bring people out of the kingdom of darkness, right? So we have to know the one sending us has authority and power over the kingdom of darkness, over Satan's realm. Now, if that wasn't a claim to deity, I don't know what would be. All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. There are people who say Jesus never claimed to be God. Excuse me, have you even read the Bible? No, probably not. Didn't he just accept people's worship? Didn't he allow Thomas to say, my Lord and my God? Can you imagine any mere man saying such a thing as what Jesus said here? Well, maybe some totally egotistical, blasphemous, demon-possessed madman like the Antichrist But the Lord Jesus not only said it, he proved it by fulfilling every single prediction ever made about the Messiah, every prediction he ever ever made, including the one that he would raise himself up from the dead after three days. You know, it really wouldn't be that difficult to believe his claim to absolute universal sovereign authority when he was making that claim in the very same body that had been crucified. Wow. But was now resurrected and glorified. And this fact is therefore, look at verse 19. Go ye therefore. This fact of his absolute sovereign authority is therefore what gives him the right to issue the commission to his followers. If his claim was not so, was not true, then everything else falls to the ground. Because this is also the statement of his ability to bring fruit from our efforts. Well, then the Lord proceeded to reveal his commission to the men who would lay the foundation for his church and to other believers who would be the charter members of the church. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Some of you are probably charter members of the church you go to. But wouldn't it be something to be a charter member of the church of Jesus Christ? 
<laughs> he says, go ye therefore and teach all nations. Now, I want to stop here because <clears throat> the word teach all nations is a different Greek word from what it says down in verse 20, teaching them to observe all things. Now, it doesn't look like it's different in English. Once again, we have this, but in Greek, it's different. The first teach, teach all nations, is the Greek word matheteo, which means make learners of all nations, make disciples of all nations. Okay? Then it goes on and says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them, that's the Greek word didasko. That means what you think teaching means, instructing them, teaching them, instructing them. To observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you all, even unto the end of the world. Now, Mark, who was much more concise, because he was writing for Peter, and Peter just, you know, right to the point, blunt. <laughs> Mark gives us the abbreviated version of the Great Commission. So if you want to memorize one of the versions, it's easier to memorize Mark's. He only has two alls in it. <clears throat> Go ye into all the world and preach. See, that's Peter's thing and preach. Matthew was a teacher. Teach. You know, Peter stresses the preach the gospel to every creature. So go into all the world, preach the gospel to all people. All right? That's Matthew 16:15. The Lord does not take us immediately to heaven at the time of our salvation. Sometimes you say, "Why, Lord, that would have been easier?" <laughs> um, you know, because he has a mission for us to fulfill here on earth. So that, you know, the mission of the church is not fellowship, as nice as it is. If that was the mission of the church, just, you know, that we have fellowship with fellow believers, he, could, he would take us home at the time of salvation because we'd have great fellowship up there, and we will have great fellowship up, up there. The, the mission of the church is not all about praise and worship. You know, as wonderful as that is, if that was the mission... Again, just take us on home because we're going to have great praise and worship up in heaven. And the angels will join us. It'll be fantastic. Can't even begin to imagine. And I'll be in tune when I sing. Uh, <laughs> me too. <laughs> but that's not the mission of the church, praise and worship. What was the Lord's supreme mission on earth? Right. He told us his mission. In Luke 19.10, he said he had come to seek and to save that which was lost, which his sacrificial death as the sinless blood substitute for mankind made possible. And remember in John 20.21, 20, he had said to his disciples, as my father hath sent me, so send I you. So really, even before we hear the words of the Great Commission, we would know that the supreme Concern for us as believers should be also to seek and to save that which is lost. If that was his supreme mission and he said that as the Father sent him, so send I you, that would also be our supreme mission. And that is exactly where the Great Commission begins. It begins with evangelism. Evangelism is to be a continual process the entire redeemed life of every individual Christian, as well as the corporate church. All through church history, that's supposed to be the supreme mission of the church, evangelism. We are to go 
and we are to support those who go out to people of all nations to make disciples. We're not to keep our knowledge of Christ and his saving gospel message to ourselves, hiding our lights under a bushel. We're to communicate it to others. And this is what the mission of saved people has always been. Remember the great commission of the Old Testament, Psalm 96.3? It says, declare his glory among the heathen and his wonders among all people. And I thought about the fact that we are so blessed in the United States because God has brought all people to us. Really. We didn't have to really go out there to all the nations. Some of us can't do that. I wanted to go. Actually, I felt called to go to the Philippines. Now I'm kind of glad I didn't go. <laughs> um, but my husband didn't feel that call. He wasn't, he, you know. So I stayed put and, you know, you bloom where you're planted, right? But I think about how my grandparents came from Greece. Where did your grandparents come from or your great-grandparents? I bet in this room alone we have a representative of many nations of the world. We might complain about our immigration laws, you know, and all the Muslims that are coming into the country. But you know what the Lord is doing? Just like he brought the Romans to Israel, he's bringing the people to us. So let's, you know, be obedient to the Great Commission. They're right on our doorstep. Let's share with them the gospel. Well, now I'm going to get to preaching, okay? What to, contrary to what appears to be the case by much of the activity which is going on in our churches today, contrary to much popular belief, Christianity is not an entertainment faith. You can go to some churches and it's, I mean, the people out there are like spectators. At a theater almost. And it's all about entertainment. Christianity is not a fellowship faith. And as wonderful as the fellowship is, that's not what Christianity is all about. Neither is it a service projects faith. You know, to just do good things and build orphanages and, and do the Samaritan's purse thing. I mean, those are all wonderful, but that is not the primary purpose for Christianity. And it is not an enterprise for preachers and TV evangelists and motivational speakers and Christian authors and musicians to make money. That's why here in this ministry we're so strong about that. I don't receive one penny from anything. Either does Terry, none of us. We're good for nothing. We always like to tell people we're good for nothing. But our books and tapes that we sell, we sell at our cost, and anything that is brought in goes right back to the Living Word Ministry. We're big and strong on that. We're not making money on this ministry. Christianity is not an enterprise. It's not a business that should adopt the world's kind of marketing programs in order to make it seeker-friendly. It's not all about tradition. It's not all about rituals and, and uh, um, liturgy and the, and the mass. And it, it's not all about heritage. It's not about big buildings, bigger and better barns. Christianity is a missionary faith. It is not God's will that any man should perish but that all would come to repentance. 2 Peter 3, 9. 
That's exactly why he sent his son to die. It is not his will that any man would perish. He didn't even make hell for people. He made it for the, the, the fallen angel, for Satan and his demons. This is his will. But he also chose to give man a will. He didn't want to be worshipped by a bunch of robots. That'd make it kind of shallow, wouldn't it? Meaningless. So he chose to give man a will. Thus man may will to choose against God's will. But that's all his business. You know, the whole concept of divine election and, and free will, that's, that's his business. Our responsibility comes in going forth to sow the seed. What is the seed? The word of God. And to cast out the nets into the deep sea of this world. The net, again, represents the, the word of God, the gospel message. Christ is the Lord of the harvest. He's the one who causes the seed to, to grow. He's the one who brings the fish into the nets. And of that harvest and of that full net of fish, you and I are responsible to make disciples. And once we get, you know, once the fish are in the nets and, um, and, and the seed is growing, Discipleship comes after evangelism. That's why the word teaching, which means to instruct, comes after evangelism. Um, then we are to take the fish. We're to get students out of the nets, and then we're to teach them. We're to instruct them. So the goal, you see, the goal of going forth in evangelism is to make people of the world to be followers of Christ who then in turn become learners of Christ by way of sound biblical doctrine and instruction. We are to be about getting people committed to Christ. But sadly, much of evangelism today focuses chiefly on decisions. But the Great Commission involves more than just a decision, doesn't it? That's just the beginning is the decision for Christ. It follows up with discipleship. Every decision for the Lord Jesus Christ, unless it's made on a deathbed, should merely be the beginning of a lifelong process of growing and growing and growing in one's understanding and one's knowledge of all that Christ himself taught through his apostles. Right? Even at almost 90 years of age, Catherine, which I see you're going to be, on November 28th, she's going to turn 90, and she is still learning, right? It's Yeah, no retirement. <laughs> so no matter where we are, no matter where we go, no matter what we do for a living, or if we don't have a job and we just work ourselves to death by being stay-at-home moms. I used to hate that, you know, when somebody says, well, do you work? It never stops. <laughs> I just don't get paid for it. <laughs> but we're, whatever we do, our primary purpose as believers is to be witnesses of and for the Lord Jesus and to reproduce ourselves with spiritual children. We are to be perpetu perpetually spiritually pregnant. How do you like that one? <laughs> Making other disciples. <laughs> 
And isn't that exactly what the 11 did? It is. I wonder how many millions of times over the years they have reproduced themselves in other, you know, in spiritual children through their testimony, the testimony of their lives, the testimony of their deaths, and the testimony of their teaching. The good thing is that you can be spiritually reproducing children even from heaven. If you have left behind a good godly witness, and if you have left behind Christ-centered teaching, you can produce children from heaven. Again, I would listen to Adrian Rogers every time I come into Bible study, and he's speaking from heaven, and he's still bearing children. Remember the greater works that the Lord said he promised his men would do? Greater works than he had done? Think of him. I mean, he concentrated his entire earthly ministry, three and a half years, on teaching how many men? Just 12 men. And one of them completely wasted all of that glorious instruction. Instruction, yeah. But those 11 true learners became vibrant fishers of men, catching miraculous netfuls of all kinds of multinational fish. Thomas went all the way to India. Multinational fish who then amazingly became lambs. Ever hear of a fish becoming a lamb? <laughs> who were discipled with the spiritual nutrition of apostolic doctrines. And the lambs grew to be mature sheep who then in turn reproduced themselves into more sheep. And the sheep went out and caught fish. <laughs> I'm having fun. <laughs> yeah, there you go, Betty, a new book for you. <laughs> and the church continued to grow and reproduce and reproduce. And here, 200 centuries later, we are, you and I, we're actually spiritual children of the apostles, of those 11, every one of us. Is the church going to be successful in the Great Commission? I mean, we look around, we get, don't we? <laughs> we didn't do it. The whole world is not saved. But the church is successful in the Great Commission, in fulfilling the Great Commission. Would you turn to Revelation 5 for a minute? Revelation 5. This is when the Apostle John, in old age, has a vision of the throne in heaven, and... Um, there's a book in God's right hand, and it's the title, Deed to the Earth. It's a scroll, and John is all upset because there's no one found worthy to open the scroll and take back the world from the usurper Satan. And then an elder says, and don't, he comes up to John and says, don't weep, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And then John looks and he sees a lamb as it had been slain, um, you know, since the foundation of the world. But look down at verse 9. You've got the 24 elders falling down before the lamb. They represent the church, okay? And they're singing a new song, verse 9, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. There are redeemed from every single nation, every tribe, every t dialect, every tongue of the world. Yes, the church 
is going to be successful in fulfilling the Great Commission. Well, <clears throat> let's see, where am I now? Included in the Lord's command to teach, you can go back to Matthew now, <clears throat> are the words, to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Now, the word observe means to do or obey. Obviously, it's necessary to know what the Lord requires in order to be able to obey it, to observe it, to do it. We are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And what is it that we are to hear so that we can do and we can obey? And what are we then in turn to, uh, to, to, to teach so that we can disciple others and they can obey? What is it we are to learn? What is it we are to teach? All things whatsoever Christ has commanded. That's the third all of the Great Commission. He has all power. We're to go to all nations. We're to teach all things. Woo! That sounds like a lifetime of learning <laughs> and a lifetime of passing along what we've learned to others. And that's exactly what it is. All things. Right? That's, that's what it should be. After a person's salvation and his public identification with Christ in baptism, which we'll talk about in a minute, the rest of his life should be spent ever learning the truths of Christ presented in his word and passing them along to others. This part of the command is of special importance in our very superficial age. What takes place far too often in our Laodicean days of church history and if you don't know what I'm talking about, church history was divided by the Lord in seven parts. We're in the last and seventh part of church history, the, the age of the Laodicean church. Not hot, not warm. I mean, not hot, not cold, but lukewarm. You know, just kind of nauseous to the Lord. What takes place far too often today is exactly the opposite of what the Lord said here in the commission. Rather than striving to teach all Christ has commanded, which actually starts all the way in the book of Genesis because he wrote the whole book, the whole Bible, many today are working fast and furiously to eliminate as much of his teaching as possible, especially the exclusivity of his words. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Many are concentrating on the things that are easier to swallow and are not so objectionable to the worldview of the majority. You know, let's not be so dogmatic about certain issues like abortion and, you know, homosexual marriages, etc. Thus, many are teaching distorted doctrine, such as grace. There's a big grace movement. Oh, it's all about God's grace. But leave out, they leave out the judgment part. Or love without justice. Or easy salvationism without sanctification. Enjoying one's liberties in Christ at the expense of holiness. Didn't Jesus say, be thou holy as I am holy? Prosperity without persecution. You know, health, wealth, and everything, bed of roses, no mention of persecution. 
These are, I'm just naming a few. All of this is called reductionism. Reducing all that Christ commanded down to those things that are more palatable to the masses. But true and robust Christian disciples are not made with watered-down reductionist teaching. Much of today's church needs desperately to recapture the concept of teaching the whole counsel of God. You know, much of the discussion, much of the conversation today about how to reach the lost and how to grow church attendance, much of that discussion centers on a vast variety of methods, many of them adopted from the world's methods, marketing kind of methods. You know, what can we do to get people to church? Which is not a bad thing unless you use, you know, worldly gimmicks. But here's the issue. These how-to-grow church attendance conversations, these conversations so often put the focus on methods to be used rather than on content to be taught. That's where the focus needs to be. However, in contrast to much of what is going on today within Christendom, in contrast to what's happening today, the Lord commanded his people to teach what? All things whatsoever I have commanded. I don't see any reductionism there. Do you? I don't see any minimizing there. In fact, I don't even see any methodology there. You know what I see? Strict bibliology. Strict Bible. What is the Lord's commission to his church? Go to all the nations of the world and teach them the entire Bible. Period. You know what? I told the ladies yesterday, I may go to a Baptist church, but whenever anybody asks me what I am, and they're speaking of my denomination, you know what I tell them? I'm a Biblicist. I never baptized anybody. <laughs> I am. I'm a Biblicist. I wish we didn't have all these denominations. We should all just be called Christians, little Christ, Biblicist. It's the word that saves, and it is the word that grows solid, godly disciples. And I'd rather have quality than quantity any day. The Lord only had 11, and they turned the world upside down, didn't they? Well, we haven't yet spoken about the middle of the three specific requirements the Lord gave for making disciples. He said, go, and what's the middle one? Baptize and teach. Baptism. Baptism, you all know, is an outward act of obedience that symbolizes a believer's identification with the Lord in his death, his burial under the water, you know, and then his resurrection coming up out of the water. It is a visible and a public testimony of an individual's admitted submission to the Lordship and the Saviorhood of Christ. Now, I don't want anybody to get mad at me. If you're not mad at me already, please don't get mad at me now. <laughs> because now I am just going to state a fact, okay? I'm just going to state a fact. There is nothing in the Bible to support infant baptism. All right, you search your Bible, you come to me with a passage that supports infant baptism. I know you can't do it. <laughs> There's nothing there. 
An infant who is baptized only gets wet. And we have too many wet infants as it is. <laughs> that infant does not get saved. Does not get saved. Just as any person who, I mean, the infant doesn't even remember when he got baptized. <laughs> I know I was baptized as an infant. Uh, just as any person who has not been born again by having placed their faith in the Lord Jesus, but is baptized, is no more saved than before he got wet. Okay? And an example from scripture is Simon Magus. I'm glad I'm not Mrs. Magus. Sounds too much like maggot. But Simon Magus was unsaved, and yet he got baptized. And all he then was was a wet Simon Magus. <laughs> Here's an example of that you know you can think of as far as baptism. Let's um, analogize it with circumcision, right? Circ there were a lot of Jewish men circumcised. Think of this: all the Sadducees were circumcised, all the Pharisees were circumcised. Does that mean all of the Sadducees and Pharisees were saved? No, no. Baptism does not save a person. Furthermore, baptism is not necessary to be saved. Some people have added baptism to faith as a requirement for salvation. And what they do, look over at the end of Mark, Mark 16. What they do is they take Mark 16, 16 out of context to support this teaching, this erroneous teaching. In Mark 16, Jesus said, He that believeth, and is baptized, shall be saved. So they say, you see right there, you have to believe, you have to have faith, and you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Of course, I'm talking about water baptism, believer's baptism. However, the proof that the Lord was not adding a work to, to grace by faith as a requirement for salvation is made evident by the rest of that verse, which they always leave out. The rest of the verse goes, Jesus goes on and makes it clear that it is not a lack of water baptism which brings condemnation. It is the lack of faith in him that brings condemnation. The entire statement reads like this. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. If baptism was a required work for salvation, Jesus would have gone on and said, but he that believeth not and is not baptized will be damned. He didn't say that. Furthermore, if you add any work to, to, um, to grace, you contradict Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by for by grace are we saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of what? Works. Not of works. Baptism would be a work added on, lest any man should boast. If baptism was required for salvation, the Lord Jesus lied to somebody. He lied to the thief on the cross when he told him he would be with him today in paradise because the thief was never baptized. Now, in whose name are believers to be baptized? The name, look at it, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Hmm, isn't that three names? 
Father, Son, Holy Ghost. So why is the word name singular, which it is? The name. I'll tell you why the name is singular. It's because the Godhead is singular. One God, three persons. One God, three roles in the Godhead. You know, the Eastern Orthodox Church, out of which I come, which is either your Russian Orthodox or your Greek Orthodox, improperly improperly demonstrates the unity of the Trinity when they baptize their infants. Of course, it's wrong to baptize an infant. It doesn't do anything but make them wet, okay, like I said. But they also baptized three times as a child. I mean, they had this big cauldron, and they dunked me three times. Once in the name of the Father, once in the name of the Son, and once in the name of the Holy Spirit. You see, they're destroying the picture of the the unity of the Trinity because we're only to be baptized once in the name of all three. Now, I want you to notice something maybe hasn't registered with you before, but believer's baptism does not just identify a person with the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the Son. It identifies him also with the Father and with the Holy Spirit as well. You see, our salvation was made possible by the work of all three members of the Godhead. And by our faith in Christ, we are wondrously and mysteriously united with all three members of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit comes to indwell us. And remember Jesus said in the high priestly prayer, I in them and thou in me. And I mean, we're mysteriously united with all three members. Baptism is the first step of obedience for a new believer in Christ. It's a public acknowledgement of his or her salvation before the presence of other believers. It doesn't save that person, as we've said, but it is a good indication of that person's commitment to surrender to the lordship of Christ because he is the one who included baptism in his great commission statement regarding discipleship. So if you have never been baptized after your salvation, you really should. That's the first step of obedience. The person who is unwilling to obey the Lord in a simple act before believers will likely find it difficult to stand firm for Christ in the world before unbelievers. You know, if you have to do what I did, I was baptized as a baby, it meant nothing. I wasn't saved till I was 22 and a half years old. And then I went and did it right and was baptized as an adult. So my husband, he was, uh, he was baptized as a child, and he and I were baptized together, and so was my mother. All three of us baptized together right over there at Grace Chapel Church. It was a wonderful day, all three of us. But that's what I, you know, if some of you were baptized as a child, tell your pastor you want to be baptized and obey the Lord. It, you'll be blessed for your obedience. Well, the final all of the Great Commission is actually a promise to the believer. And lo, I am with you always, all the days, even unto the end of the age. The word, word lo, by the way, is another version of verily. When the, when the Lord said lo, <laughs> it's like saying verily. Listen up, this is important. So here's what he's saying. These are the very last words of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, lo, listen intently for this is very important. I am with you. All the days, even unto the end of the age. Now, here is something interesting. These are the last words of Matthew's gospel Do, by Jesus. Do you know how we were introduced to Jesus 
at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel? We were introduced to Jesus by Matthew, first book of the New Testament. In Matthew 1.23, we were introduced to him as Emmanuel, which Matthew goes on to explain to us in Hebrew means God with us. Now, isn't it fascinating to realize that in the very last verse of Matthew, the same promise is given, except with a wonderful new addition. God with us always. God in the flesh came to live with man at Bethlehem. But the duration of his stay was only 33 years, and then he left. However, for those of us who put our faith in him, we have the promise of Emmanuel always. God with us always. Oh, well, I don't have time to discuss the sign miracles that were given to the um, apostles by the Lord in verses 17 and 18 there of Mark 16. So would you please read the book on that? Um, There are no homework questions, but please read that. And I want to close because really it summarizes the, the sign miracles with Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 summarizes what the Lord did. And you all know this verse. It says, how shall we escape? If we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord. The Lord God, actually all the way back in Genesis 3.15, began to speak about this great salvation. And was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Who was that? The apostles. God bearing them witness, you know, so that people would believe their message with both signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Before the scripture was completed, he gave his apostles sign miracles so that they would believe his, their message. And that's it in a, in a nutshell. All right, would you bow your head with me, please? I want to ask you some questions as we close here. If you have never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I want to ask, what stage are you at? Do you believe that he lived, that he really was an historical person? Do you believe that he died on the cross for your sin? Do you believe that if you ask him to forgive you of your sin and come into your life, that he will? If your answer to those questions is yes, then you're one-third of the way there. In your heart, is there a genuine desire to know him? Is there a desire to be with him, not only the rest of your life, but with him in heaven when you die? Do you sincerely want to know and to be with your God? Again, if you can say yes, then you're two-thirds of the way there. Do you know that you absolutely, positively need Christ? That there is nothing that you can possibly do 
to save yourself, but that he did it all for you. And that you merely need to accept his free gift of salvation. Now, if you, again, honestly answer yes, then you can receive Christ right now. All you have to do is say, Lord Jesus, please save me from my sin. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? The answer is, we won't. So if there's anyone here who who isn't sure of your salvation and you don't know if you're truly saved, don't neglect it, for today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow may be too late. Father, I pray if there is someone here who does not know you, may today indeed be the day of her salvation. I did not want to close the Life of Christ study without giving that important invitation. We love you. I ask that you go with every woman and bring us all back safely next week for the grand finale of the grand finale. For we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.